Obey him doesn't equal good news for most people, right? I mean, this is, uh, Jesus calls for total obedience. Okay, when we open up the Bible, when you read about Jesus, he says, you need to turn the direction of your life, wherever direction you're facing, and you need to follow me. And then he's got these 12 apostles, and they go out and preach, and they say, Whatever direction your life is going, whatever you're living for now, whatever you're doing, whoever you, whatever it is, you need to turn the direction of your life and point it at Jesus and follow him. Now, how is that good news? The idea that we have to follow, the idea that you have to give up authority in your life and have Jesus as your authority. Like, how is that good news? I mean, this is not the idea of someone coming in and saying, okay, you can't decide for yourself anymore what's right and wrong. But Jesus will. That doesn't feel like good news. Telling someone, you know what? Jesus knows everything. Jesus has it all. You have to obey him because he's God. I think that creates a tension in us. It's a tension that, that a lot of us, even folks that are Christians, struggle with. I mean, folks who are very very familiar with church, been to church for a long time, sometimes kind of have this idea of, well, I follow Jesus, but then there's a few things where, like, I really don't want to do it his way. Um, there are places in the Bible, yeah, you know, I just don't look at those places in the Bible, you know, and, and so even for Christians, this is a tension, let alone when you begin to share the gospel or talk about the good news with someone, I mean, we, we do this, right, we want to talk about the blessings, we want to talk about how amazing Jesus is, how wonderful he is, and when they're ready, I mean, I feel this tension. When they're ready, we feel like they're ready, then we'll begin to tell them, okay, now you have to obey too. That's also part of the deal. And people go, what? Huh? Wait, hold on. What? I'm not going to do this. You're telling me I have to follow a 2,000-year-old book that talks about a guy who lived a long time ago and may or may not have died and risen from the dead? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, this is the tension that we experience, both Christians and people who aren't Christians, Folks who come to church and folks who don't go to church all wrestle with this tension. And so the question I want to ask today, or the the question I think that we want to ask that Mark answers today is, how is it that having to obey Jesus could possibly be good news? Because Mark actually thinks it is. In this gospel of Mark that we're reading, Mark thinks that having to obey Jesus, giving up authority in your life and obeying Jesus is actually part of the good news. Okay, this isn't sort of the price you have to pay to be saved, but this is part of the good news. And this section of Mark that we're looking at, Mark 5 through 8, answers this question. It addresses this tension. Um, We're in a series that's called Revolutionary King. Right, where we're seeing that Jesus, Mark is showing us the kind of king that Jesus is. He has all authority. He has all power. He demands that we obey him. And Mark is convinced that for Jesus to call you to total obedience, that means no matter what he says, you have to do it. Mark thinks that, that is the greatest news you could ever hear. Man, but this is backwards for us. Again, we think it's the opposite. Um, Demands on us, even when it's good for us, it's still a drudgery. Well, okay, I know I need to do this. I know it's good for me to work out, so I'll go ahead and do it. But I'm not going to be happy about it. Mark says, no, no, no. When you see Jesus, when you get to know Jesus, 
you will gladly give everything to follow him. That's what Mark is trying to say. And here's what we've seen so far. We've seen as this revolutionary king that as our king, Jesus cares. Okay? It's not that he cares and he just happens to be king, but Jesus uses his kingly office to care for his people. We also saw that as our king, Jesus serves. And this is revolutionary, right? We live in a day and age where no one uses their authority to do anything but serve themselves. Right? In politics, in business, I mean, in the family, right? When people have authority, they use that authority. They feel entitled to use that authority to get theirs, to serve themselves. But with Jesus, we saw this last week, that he uses his authority to serve, to serve. And if you miss those messages, go back and listen to them and be blown away by that. But today, today we're moving on. Today what we're going to see is that as our king, Jesus makes us holy, Jesus begins a revolution of holiness, and he makes us holy. And this is what I want you to write. Go ahead and write that on the blank there under your sermon notes. As our king, Jesus makes us holy. And now we've got to talk about this, right? The word holiness or holy, um, this brings up another tension. Like, what is holiness, and why should I care about being holy? Um, For many people, um, especially those people who aren't Christians, who aren't churchgoers, uh, the idea, the word holy is usually used in one phrase and one phrase only. And it's the phrase, holier than thou. Right? Usually the word holy comes up in the context of Christians or religious people acting like they're better than everybody else. Okay? Now, for most, holy is another word for self-righteous. But that's not what holiness is according to Jesus. Okay, to Jesus, to be holy means to be special. Okay, for Jesus, to be holy means to be special. To be holy means to be destined by God for a special purpose in life. We've already begun, Chad has talked about this already in the, in the, in the singing part of our worship service, um, that God is in a, he's on a mission to renew the world. And God will renew the world by renewing people whose lives then change and renew others. And so there's a beauty to a life that's holy. God wants lives that are beautiful, that are integrated, that are attractive to others um, because of the special character that God's people have. God wants us to live differently. He wants us to be sort of what's right with the world. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week who is not a Christian. And uh, this friend is trying to reset the direction of his life. And he said this to me. He said, you know what? I know that I'm the sum total of the people that I spend time with. And so because of that, he said, Stephen, I want to spend more time with you. And I was blown away. Like, I was blown away. And I don't tell you this because I'm trying to pat myself on the back or tell you, oh, hey, look how great I am. I'm not telling you that for those reasons. In fact, I hesitated to tell you the story, but it's important because what he's attracted to isn't me. It's Jesus in me. Okay? There is something in me that wasn't in me before. There is something that God has put in me. There's something that Jesus has put in me that has made me special, Um, And again, I wrestle with with talking about this, but the reason I'm saying this is because what Jesus has put in me that makes some of who I am somewhat attractive to other people um, 
is what he wants to put in all of us. Um, he wants to put his holiness into all of us. He wants to share that holiness into, in, in you. And if you're a Christian, he's already done this. You may not know it. You may not know it. And so this is what Mark 7 is about. It's about holiness. And Jesus introduces to us, Mark introduces to us what holiness is through a debate over the opposite of holiness. Okay? In this chapter, the opposite of holiness is to be defiled. Okay? Defiled. Defiled. The word defiled appears seven times in the passage that we're about to read in this argument over what makes somebody defiled, over what makes somebody not holy. And so before we read this, let me just give you, here's the outline of what we're going to read. We're going to see that religious leaders accuse Jesus. Then Jesus confronts the leaders. Then Jesus teaches the crowds vaguely. And then Jesus teaches his disciples clearly. Okay, so that's what we're going to see as we read this passage. So this is Mark 7. We're going to read verses 1 to 23. It's there in your bulletin. Listen now. This is God's word. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, this is them asking Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother... Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
So this is God's word. We're going to walk through this passage and understand it, enter into it, so that we can understand both what it means to be defiled and also what it means that Jesus is a king who makes us holy. So in verse 1, we see the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem come to Jesus and they make an accusation. Okay, Now, it sounds like a question, uh, but it's really a condemnation. Okay, They come to Jesus condemning him because they saw his disciples eat without washing their hands first. Now, you need to understand this isn't a cleanliness issue. Okay, the way that um, the, the way the word washed is used, um, this is referring to a ritual ceremony of washing hands. And scholars actually, you can do the research, they, they, um, they either poured hand, they, they poured water over their hands in a cup form like this, and it was symbolically covering their hands. And it was this way that they would ritually purify themselves uh, before they ate. And the religious leaders were convinced, these Pharisees, these scribes, these were, again, these were the folks who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of the nation. They were convinced that everyone who didn't do this was defiled. Now, this is just a little symptom of a bigger issue. The way that the religious leaders thought at that time was that they were special. The religious leader said, we are special, we are close to God. Frankly, we're better than everybody else. They had a prayer. The, the religious leaders had prayers that they would pray every day where they would actually, part of their prayer every morning was, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. That means uh, I'm not a non-Jew. I thank you I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. So this is sort of the mentality. This was something they would pray every single morning. And so they had this idea, and there was a way that if you followed their rules, then you also were as special as they were. And if you didn't, then you were defiled. So what they're doing here when they're coming to Jesus, asking him about his disciples, is really they're saying, why are your disciples so evil? Why are your disciples so unclean, so impure? Why do they disregard God's ways and dishonor God? They're saying, you know what, your disciples, they're good for nothing. They're good for nothing. They're not special. God has no plan for them. God doesn't care about them because they clearly don't care about him. And if that's their condemnation of Jesus' disciples, then that's their condemnation of Jesus. And so we have here this question of what is it that makes someone defiled? What makes them holy? Like that's the question here that they're Um, that they're discussing. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus then confronts the leaders. Um, One of the problems is that there is no verse in the Bible that says you have to wash your hands before you eat. Okay? And so the the priests were supposed to wash as they did ceremonies in the temple, Um, but there was no law that said you needed to do this. So Jesus could have just said, hey guys, show me chapter and verse. And then we can talk about it, knowing that there isn't a chapter and a verse. But he doesn't do that, actually. Jesus does something different. Instead, Jesus deals with the real issue. Jesus doesn't deal with the stuff on the surface. He actually goes and talks about what's really, um, what's really important, and that's their hearts. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, guys, you're coming to me as though you are super spiritual. You're coming to me as though you act like God and can speak from him. You act like you know more about God than anyone else. 
And I want you to know, and I want everyone else to know, that you are hypocrites. Jesus calls them out. He says, you are nothing more than actors. The word hypocrite really just meant actor in Jesus' day. And so you would go to a theater show and you would see a bunch of hypocrites. And it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. It was often used to describe people who, because back then, actors wore masks. And so a hypocrite back then was someone who wore a mask. And they appeared to be something that they weren't really inside. And that's what Jesus is saying, although there is definitely a negative connotation here. Jesus is saying, your words are a mask. Your words, what comes out of your mouth is a mask. It's covering up who you really are. You act like you care about God, but really you only care about yourselves. So he calls them hypocrites, and then he quotes this passage from Isaiah. And he's quoting Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's just someone who says things that sound spiritual. It's not even saying the right things, although that can be true too. They could say the right things, but their heart is far away from God. Jesus is saying, you talk about God, you talk about church, you talk about the Bible, but in your heart, you are far away from God. And then it says in verse 7, in vain do they worship me. And I think it's important for all of us to stop and to look at this phrase. It says, in vain do they worship me. That means that they go through some pretty significant like, acts of worship. They pray, they read the Old Testament scriptures, um, they teach and they talk, they bring sacrifices to the temple. They do all kinds of things that God tells them to do as acts of worship. And Jesus says, it is all completely and totally worthless. It's possible for us. It's possible for us even to worship in vain. I mean, this hits home for me where, I mean, sometimes like I come to church and I've got a thousand things going on in my brain and things that are, I mean, some of it's related to preaching, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's related to other stuff going on in my life. And all of a sudden, I sort of snap to it. And I'm like, oh, we're, we're, we're singing the third song. I'm like, but I, I sang every other song. Like, I remember my mouth was moving. Um, gosh, I wasn't worshiping, though. Um, that it's possible if our heart is far from God, if we're not intentionally engaged in a relationship with God, then even the acts, the church acts, even the acts of, I mean, of religiosity that we might do are vain. They're worthless. And so this causes us to ask. You just got to ask yourself the question, do I worship in vain? Do I worship in vain? It is significant that Jesus quotes this particular passage anytime an Old Testament verse is quoted, um, just as a Bible study thing. What you ought to do is you ought to go back and read the entire chapter that it comes from. So if you were to read Isaiah chapter 29, you would find that it's not just that this is a verse about hypocrites and it's really convenient for Jesus to use, but what's going on in Isaiah 29 is that God is announcing judgment on the nation of Israel 
because their leaders have come to the place where they are blind to God's word and deaf to his prophets. And God says, I am about to bring an end to you as a nation. So when Jesus quotes this, he's not just confronting the hypocritical leadership, but he's actually saying what God was promising to bring onto the nation when Isaiah preached, God is preparing to bring onto the nation of Israel today. Are you with me? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. So he's actually bringing not just this verse, but the whole of Isaiah 29 to bear on this. He said, when the leadership gets to the place where it is blind and deaf to God, at that place, the end of the nation is coming. And Jesus doesn't just make this accusation. He gives them example. He gives them an example. Okay? In verses 9 to really 13, he gives them an example. He says, look, the God's, here's what God says. God says, honor your father and your mother. Okay? Fifth commandment, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Um, God says, honor your mother. And this is a promise. Uh, was it, this promise or this commandment actually had a promise. So again, if you read the rest of the context of honor your father and mother, it says, honor your father and your mother, and it will go well with you, and you will live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So if they are corrupting that commandment, they are not going to live long in the land that God has given them. Okay? So that's there. So, you, uh, so God says, honor your father and your mother, but you're corrupting this. You're corrupting this because instead you tell people, let's read this together because you can kind of get lost here a little bit. So he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So here's what was happening. The religious leaders were teaching people Yes, you need to follow God. Yes, you need to obey the commands. And I'm sure, you know, the Ten Commandments are a part of what they would tell people to obey. But, but actually, there's something that you can do that will elevate your spirituality, that will make you even holier than that. What you need to do is you need to take the money that you have and devote it to God. You should take the money that you have and give it to God. Then you'll be really holy. And if you were to do that, you could take a vow and say, I'm going to give this money to God. That's called Corbin. The word Corbin is, is just related to, to the idea of being devoted to God. Okay? And so these religious leaders were teaching people, if you just devote this money to God, then you are even holier. You are super spiritual. You're like, why you're, you're climbing the ladder to our level of spirituality. That's what they were teaching them. Um, and then let's say somebody were to do that. Somebody were to say, okay, I'm going to give this much money to God. I'm going to devote this money to God. Well, then all of a sudden, their parents undergo a hardship. Their parents undergo like a financial, they undergo financial ruin. They need help. And so the person who devoted this money to God might go back to the leaders and say, hey, listen, I know I've made this commitment to you, but my parents are really bad off. They're in a really bad way. Um, could I please give them some of this money um, so that their needs can be met? And the religious leaders would say, you know what, it's so vital that you keep your vows. 
It is so vital that you honor the commitments that you make. So no, you can't give it to your parents because you've committed this to God. That's what they were saying. They were telling people also, instead of supporting your parents, if you devote money to God, that's even better and greater. And what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying like, man, you are teaching people how to disobey God. You're teaching people actually how to do what you're doing, which is to live far away from him. Because what's the problem with what they're saying? Well, it's one thing if you are, um, gosh, it's one thing if you're a neighbor encouraging someone else to say, hey, you know what, you really ought to devote all this money to God and not give it to your parents. It's something a little different when you're one of the religious leaders and you're telling people, oh, devote the money to God. Because where does that money go? It goes right into their own pockets. All that money goes into the temple, which funded, um, which funded the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And so Jesus is, you know, in what I think is very clear sarcasm, um, you know, some people wonder, like, is, is Jesus ever sarcastic? Is the Bible ever sarcastic? Is sarcasm? I mean, what we have here, I think, is pretty clear sarcasm. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Right, so with sarcasm, Jesus says, you guys, you're awful. You guys are hypocrites. You are not in this for God. You're actually violating one of the most important commandments, not only to God, but even for the fabric of society. When children stop honoring their parents, when you disrupt the authority structure, when you disown your parents, when you refuse to honor them, it is not going to be long before civilization runs amok. And Jesus says, look, this is just one example. This is just one example. And we've already seen in Mark's gospel, we've seen other places. Um, we've seen when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, they're like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. When Jesus ate with sinners, they said, oh, you're not supposed to do that. And so there were practices that the religious leaders had, and Jesus is confronting them point blank. He's saying, look, you guys are actors. All of your spirituality, all of your religiosity, all of your holiness is actually filthy excrement. You're hypocrites. So Jesus confronts their hypocrisy, confronts their, um, the leaders of his day, and then he turns to the crowds and he teaches them vaguely. And I say vaguely because what Jesus says to them is called a parable in verse 17. Right after he enters the house, his disciples ask him about the parable. And the parable is what he says in verses 14 and 15. He calls all the people, so it's like he's having this interaction with the religious leaders where he's confronting them, and then he turns to everybody else. And he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, listen, the religious leaders have just, they've completely misunderstood the way the world works. When they talk about defilement, when they talk about being special or holy to God, they think that what is defiling is the dirt in the world that's out there. And I'm telling you, that's not where defilement comes from. 
That's not where defilement comes from. It's pretty awful um, to just try to wrap your mind around the significance of what was going on. There are all kinds of purity laws in the Old Testament. God is super detailed about things that can make you unclean or defiled and things and what you do if you've been defiled and how you become clean. Um, the purity laws in the Old Testament, though, they were all designed to lead people back into the presence of God. That's what they were for. God gave these laws so that you could know for sure what to do to make your way back into God's presence. So if there was anything that you have done, any way, God wanted to be super clear. Like most people, when they read the book of Leviticus, like their eyes gloss over and they fall asleep about two chapters in, right? They don't understand it. They think it's tedious. They think it's super detailed. They don't know why it's all there. <laughs> the magic of the book of Leviticus, like the gospel in the book of Leviticus is that God is telling his people, look, I want you not to wonder. I don't want you to be unclear at all about what it is to be right with me. I want you to know exactly um, the things that make you sinful and how you can be forgiven. And so the purity laws, they were designed to lead people back. But what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing was they were using these laws to drive people away. Okay? And so Jesus is trying to get the crowds to understand, look, nothing that's outside of a person going in can defile him, but it's what comes out of a person that's what defiles him. And this is sort of vague. It's called a parable because Jesus, um, we saw this in chapter four, although we didn't look really specifically at it, but Jesus, there's a bunch of parables in chapter four. Sometimes people use illustrations to make truth clear. Jesus sometimes used parables to actually hide the truth from people. Um, Jesus knew what the religious leaders were capable of doing and what they were going to do. And Jesus had a sense of the timing of when his conflict with the religious leaders of his day was going to escalate. And at this point, Jesus was not ready yet for that conflict to escalate. And so Jesus speaks vaguely to the crowds so that it's not abundantly clear to them exactly what he's saying about the religious leaders of his day. Um, and he does that um, because he's not ready yet. There will come a time, and we'll see it in the future, and there will come a time, Jesus is waiting for something to click, and we're going to see that in chapter 8. He's waiting for something to click before he's willing um, to become fully open about his critique. Um, but, so he speaks to the crowds vaguely, and um, because he's hiding still the truth from them. But, then what he does after, he goes in and he teaches the disciples clearly. Okay? He takes the disciples away in verse 17. They entered the house, they left the people, and his disciples asked him about the parable. And then he teaches them. And what he says here, it's pretty clear. What he says is, look, it's not what's outside of you that's going to make you defiled. It's what's inside of you. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. The Pharisees think it's the dirt, but actually real corruption comes from within. The world that we live in is broken because we are broken. The world is corrupt because people, because we are corrupt. The world is defiled because we have filled the world with defilement. We have no one to blame but ourselves. And so 
Jesus, man, Jesus is saying this. Um, Jesus is saying this because he wants to make sure that his disciples, who are going to be new leaders, right? He is developing the disciples to become leaders. And he wants to make sure that his disciples never, ever, ever become like the religious leaders of his day. And so he comes to them and he says, listen, here's the problem. The problem is, it's in all of us. The problem is in you. He says, verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And I think that's sort of a topic sentence, or or the evil thoughts is sort of like the banner under which there are then 12 things that Jesus lists. Um, It could be one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know. Um, But the point Jesus is making is if you look into your heart, you will see that the problem lies within us. Evil thoughts. Do you ever have evil thoughts? I do. Um, Sexual immorality. And we know that for Jesus... um, It's not just acts of sexual immorality, but it's thoughts of sexual immorality. Theft. And this is taking anything that doesn't belong to you. Right? It could be like the crime of stealing, but it could also be stealing. um, It could be stealing praise that doesn't belong to you. It could be stealing someone's reputation. Um, There's theft. Uh, There's murder. And so this is murder. This is also hatred. Um, Adultery. Um, This, I guess, sexual immorality is referring to sexual immorality outside of marriage. Adultery is sexual immorality inside marriage. Um, Coveting, wanting what you don't have, what somebody else has. Wickedness, deceit, right? So this is lying. Um, Sensuality, again, related to sexuality. Um, Envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I think what can be helpful with this list, one of the ways that I thought about organizing this list is that after evil thoughts, that's the banner, you have sexual immorality, theft, and murder. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. That's sex, money, and power. Right? Sexual immorality, that's sex. Theft is, I mean, related to the sinful taking of money. Right? When you take money that belongs to somebody else, when you cheat to get money, when you... Um, when you strive to, like, overcome other people. I mean, even, I heard somebody this week, they're saying the lottery is theft because you're stealing money from people that play it, um, which is kind of an interesting take on, on the lottery. I probably shouldn't have brought that up because that might, well, you can talk about that. You can decide for yourself after, after church. But sex, like theft with money and then murder is, in so many ways, like the, the ultimate act of power, taking someone else's life, um, cutting somebody else down, speaking evil or, or being violent toward them. I mean, in all these ways, we're talking about an abuse of power. Um, and I think Tim Keller was the one who says that sex, money, and power are like the unholy trinity of our day and age. Like, these are the idols um, that we struggle with more often than not, that our culture seems to be really in bed with, um, to mix metaphors there. And the reason that it's important to bring this up is that I think it's, it's, it behooves us to see this list. Because personally, I struggle with this list. Like, I struggle with these things. 
and my actions are the absolute wrong thing to do about my problem. Okay? I get mad at a world that trains women to dress in ways that cause men to undress them further. Right? I get angry at a culture that provokes me to think about sex all the time in every situation. Um, I get frustrated with a culture that puts sex all over the internet, um, in YouTube, in banner ads. Even when I'm innocently browsing the internet, stuff comes at me and I'm one click away from stuff that really is awful. Like, it's, it's awful, it's degrading. Um, I'm frustrated with sex that's presented from a culture in the checkout lines at the grocery store, television shows that I want to watch, and yet there's no way to watch just about anything without them throwing something in that's going to cause me, right? It's going to cause me and people that I love to be exposed to sexual immorality, right? I'm angry at a culture that is a constant source of temptation for me to lust, um, and, and that it lies to us about sex. It tells us that, you know what, we'll be really happy if we can just have free sex, that all sex is good. As long as it feels good, go ahead and do it, and you'll be happy. Right? I get angry. I get livid about this, not only because of myself, but because of my family, right? because of people that I know and care about, people who are in bondage to this stuff and can't get out. And so I get angry at a world that tells us all of this. But what I really need to be angry about, first and foremost, what I really need to be angry about, second most, and third most, and fourth most, is that in my heart, I love this. In my heart, there is a significant part of who I am that is drawn to it. What Jesus says is right. I don't need, I mean, I don't even need the temptation out there to sin in these ways. I don't need temptation to lust. Like, I can do it on my own. And as I studied this passage this week, I just, it hits me. Like, I want to say, like, I'm not out there going, oh, man, if y'all just wash your hands, then life would be really great. But how often have I been just livid with the culture? And really, I think in some ways, I'm just angry because it's got such a purchase in my own heart. It is so easy for me to run after these things. Um, there is a big part of me that's just ready and waiting and wanting to be tempted so I can blame it on what's outside. Jesus says that's where my defilement comes from. That's why I'm defiled. It's not because of the world I live in. It's because of the heart that I have that is fallen and broken. It's because I want things that really, I mean, ultimately aren't good for me. I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said, the line between good and evil is not between different races of people. It's not between different classes of people. It's not between political parties. The line between good and evil runs right through the human heart. It's in all of us. Man, the problem isn't with politicians that want to tax the rich. Um, the problem is with politicians and people who want to be lazy and want to abuse 
people's tax money. Right? The problem isn't with politicians who want to give people back their money, right? who want to give the rich and the successful back their money. That's not the problem. The problem is with people that want to use the money they have to serve themselves. Right? We constantly think that the problem is out there in politics um, with our own sin, with our own addictions. We think that the problem is in relationships with them, him or her. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 the problem, it's what comes out of us that's the reason we're defiled. And, man, I... We need to come to grips with this. We need to come to grips with this. And the point is not that we would then have this crazy, morose view of ourselves. Um, this is some of the most healthy rea- like realization that we can have. Because it's, it's when you realize this, when you realize that this is what's inside of you, it may not be the only thing inside of you. It's, it's not by God's grace. It's not the only thing inside of me. But when you realize that this is inside of you, then you never, ever think you're better than anyone else. Like, there's just no room for that. There's no room to exclude anyone else from God. Because if he saved me, he could save anyone in this room. If he saved me, if he was willing to take my sin, if he was willing to love me even in the worst of my own sin, then he can save anyone. He can love everyone in San Diego. And so Jesus, in this discussion man, about what makes people defiled. He says it's what we do. It, it's, um, and what's interesting is the way that the story ends, right? This passage ends here, and then it moves on, and we'll, we'll move on next week. But Mark doesn't give the answer here, right? Jesus says this is where defilement comes from, but he doesn't talk about what the answer is. And I think that's because he already has. He already has. In chapter 1, right after Jesus shows up to identify with the sinners of John the Baptist, he is baptized by John. He identifies. He's like, I'm with these folks. I'm with the folks who are confessing their sins. In chapter 1, it says, after he was baptized, he came up out of the water, and Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so, friends, if you want to know, we know now where defilement comes from. But where does holiness come from? It comes from the one person on earth who was never defiled. It comes from the one person on earth who was well-pleasing to God. It comes to the one person on earth who, like everyone else, it was baptized. They were confessing their sins, and John baptized them, and God's up there going, yep, Yep, you need forgiveness. Yep, yep, you need forgiveness. Yep, yep, you need forgiveness. And then Jesus comes and God says, finally, finally, you're being baptized not for your sins, but for the sins of the world. This is a picture of what Jesus would do because not only has Mark already told us about Jesus, but he's going somewhere with this story. 
I mean, every story, it's like we have to stop, we have to finish the story, right? Even though we're in chapter 7, we've got to talk about what's coming. Jesus doesn't just correct the hypocrisy. Uh, he doesn't just expose the defilement that's in all of our hearts. But where Jesus is going, where the cross takes Jesus, is that God, when Jesus is on the cross, God treats Jesus as though he were as defiled as all of us because of what we've done. But because Jesus was well-pleasing to God, God takes our sin, gives it to him. God takes Jesus' holiness, Jesus' perfection, and he gives it to us. Friends, that is good news. Friends, that is the gospel. Um, and I'm going to stop here.